0: The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Deep State, an Epic's original series. Truth is a matter of perspective in this electrifying conspiracy series. Deep State returns Sunday, April 28th, only
1: on Epic's. Get the channel or get the app. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, it's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Halahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 24th. Today, a standoff between Trump and Congress, Elizabeth Warren's plan to tackle student debt, and elections in the world's biggest democracy. I thought after
0: two years, we'd be finished with it. No, now the House goes and starts subpoenaing. They want to know every deal I've ever done. Now, Mueller, I assume. For $35 million, checked my taxes, checked my financials, which are great, by the way. You know they're great. All you have to do is go look at the records. They're all over the place. It was the most thorough investigation probably in the history of our country. I think I read where they interviewed 500 people.
2: I say it's enough.
1: Since the release of the Mueller report, tensions on Capitol Hill have escalated. Democrats in the House have issued a number of subpoenas related to the White House.
0: This is a political war between the White House and Congress. Robert Costa covers politics for The Post. President Trump is adamant, when you talk to White House officials about their private conversations with him, to fight Capitol Hill every step of the way, to not let House Democrats get documents or testimony from current or former
1: officials. On Tuesday, Robert spoke with the president and asked him about these subpoenas.
0: It was interesting to hear the president himself articulate this point of view on Tuesday evening in a phone call because it underscored what me and others at The Post had been hearing, that the president was seriously considering asserting executive privilege, in effect, blocking aides and former officials from testifying. So
1: let's go back for a second. What are all of these subpoenas that the House is issuing related to the Mueller report, but related to things completely different from the Mueller report?
0: There's a wide world of things that are happening on Capitol Hill. It can be hard to follow. There's Don McGahn, the former White House counsel. The House Judiciary Committee would like to talk to him about the president's conduct, particularly that episode in the Mueller report where the president talks to McGahn about possibly trying to get rid of special counsel Robert Mueller. But that's not the only issue at play. House Democrats are also looking for more information about President Trump's finances. They also want to find out more about the security clearance process at the White House and why were people like Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, allowed to get certain levels of security clearances despite concerns from the intelligence community.
1: So when you talk to President Trump on Tuesday night what did he have to say about this?
0: He said that Don McGahn and others should not go to Capitol Hill because, in his view, it's a partisan process, whereas the Justice Department and that special counsel probe was something that was more nonpartisan in nature. He thinks Speaker Pelosi and her committee chairman are not operating on the level of course, the president also used to call the special counsel operation a partisan probe. But now he says he did all he could for that probe. Thus, in his argument, he doesn't need to do more. Where this ultimately ends is federal court. If the president and the White House do what's calling a cert executive privilege, which puts up a wall between witnesses and Congress, then you're going to have to have a court decide Who should really testify or not?
1: Can President Trump actually exert executive privilege to prevent former White House counsel Don McGahn from testifying? There is
0: a case to be made that Don McGahn, because all of his comments about President Trump and the decisions and conduct President Trump has had in the White House were laid out in the Mueller report. And if that Mueller report is a public document provided by the Department of Justice, how can you claim that's somehow special information? It's public information. So asking him to put his right hand up and testify before Congress about things that are already in the public sphere, that, House Democrats say, doesn't make executive privilege a logical thing you can cite. That said, the White House is maintaining that because he was White House counsel, he doesn't have to testify. Even if Congress asks him to testify, that's now a battle that could be kicked to the courts.
1: Do we have a sense of whether Don McGahn is willing to comply with this?
0: That is the biggest question in Washington. What does Don McGahn do next? Don McGahn, on one hand, he hears and sees what President Trump is saying. He hears the White House talking about executive privilege. He also knows as a lawyer himself that he could easily say... It's not privileged information. I'm going to choose to go to Congress myself and testify. How Don McGahn handles the White House's positioning, whether he aligns with it or breaks with it, will say so much about how this plays out in Congress. Because if Congress and House Democrats can't get Don McGahn to testify, it's hard for them to build an obstruction case, at least in the public view, because McGahn is a keystone to understanding the president's conduct if you're making an obstruction argument. Without McGahn, it's very difficult because then you're just relying on what's in the Mueller report. And based on my reporting, McGahn has not yet made a decision.
1: But it's it's interesting that in all these ways, instead of President Trump taking the attitude of like, look, I have nothing to hide. You can talk to Don McGann if you want. I don't really care. Or you can try to impeach me if you want. I don't really care. He's He's already kind of playing defense against these things. And what does that say about where he's at right now? He is
0: back to where he has always been in New York, in the business world. He is someone who fights constantly, who actually relishes the fight. You think about his former lawyer, the late Roy Cohn, who was disbarred in New York, was seen as an unethical figure. He always advised a young Donald Trump to fight everything in the courts, to litigate and litigate and relitigate, and that ethos: punch him in the mouth, go to court, fight him on everything, give them nothing. That 1980s Roy Cohn Donald Trump mentality is with us today, and it's shaping American government.
1: What are the constitutional stakes here?
0: This is a constitutional reckoning. In recent history, we have never seen a president push the limits of his power in such a dramatic way. We are watching history unfold before our eyes. Is it sometimes a spectacle on Twitter? Does it seem like everything's normal when every day is chaotic? It can certainly seem like that, but this is not a normal moment. You have a president of the United States shutting the door on the House of Representatives and saying, take me to court on every front. And this is, the Congress has in the constitution, authority to have oversight of the executive branch. Congress in the constitution has oversight of the executive branch. And now they feel like their hands are being tied. They can't do their job. The pressure on Capitol Hill will only build as the president continues to hit them. And who knows where this goes
1: and how it plays out. Robert, thank you so much. Thank you. Robert Costa is a political reporter for The Post.
3: This is about opportunity for everyone.
1: Earlier this week, Senator Elizabeth Warren released an ambitious plan to tackle student loan debt. We are going to roll back student loan debt for about 95% of students who have debt.
2: This plan has several different components.
1: Jeff Stein is a
2: policy reporter for The Post. The most interesting and radical and and new is an idea to relieve student debt for those making under $100,000 a year.
1: Jeff has been combing through the details of Warren's plan.
2: The plan would offer some relief for those who make up to $250,000, but it would relieve the student debt substantially for 90% of those who owe it. Separately, as part of the plan, Warren also is proposing to eliminate tuition at public colleges and universities, both at the two- and four-year level, as well as to invest $50 billion in historically Black colleges and universities.
1: So the debt forgiveness part of this, you said that for people who are earning less than $100,000 a year, all of their college debt would be wiped away. Some of it would be wiped away. Only up
2: to $50,000.
1: But then you could still have some of your debt forgiven if you're making under $250,000 a year. That's
2: correct. The amount would phase down after that, depending on how much you make. So if you make two hundred you're more likely to get less student debt relief than if you're making hundred and two dollars So
1: in that case, the government would be the one who would be basically paying back the loans to these banks?
2: That's correct. But also in a lot of these cases, the loans originate with the government. So it's the government scrapping obligations that itself has come up with in the first place. That said, your your question gets at, I think, what the first line of criticism was from you know, centrist Democrats and Republicans who looked at this and said, hey, look, a lot of people have spent a lot of time and spent a lot of money um, and put a lot of effort into paying these off. And what about them what about people who worked really hard to do this are are we going to just reward the people who have not found you know the time and the effort to do that the response to that has been well a lot of people made the decision to go to college when they were young not necessarily knowing the student debt obligation they would be in and that this Really, $1.5 trillion in national student debt in the economy is a huge problem. It prevents people from buying homes. It prevents people from having kids and starting families and becoming productive members of the economy. So it, it sparked this really interesting debate that you can sort of see on both sides.
1: So if this were to be put in place... How much would this cost the government?
2: The plan overall would cost about $1.2 trillion over 10 years, the majority of which, about $600 billion, is the student debt relief part. The other part of the plan would be the, the free public colleges and universities, which, I mean, it sounds like a lot of money, $1.2 trillion, but as someone who spends a lot of time, probably too much time looking at federal budget numbers, it's really not that much money in terms of the federal budget picture. You know, it's it's obviously not a trivial amount of money, but it's not some of the biggest items that Democrats have talked about.
1: And how is she planning to pay for it?
2: Warren has also released a series of proposed tax increases on the very rich, including a proposed wealth tax that would tax at 2%, the wealth above $50 million, the small proportion of Americans who have that much money. And that would raise... Something on the order, estimates vary, but $2.75 trillion over 10 years. So her plan, and she's very explicit about this, her plan to institute free college and relieve a huge amount of student debt is only half the cost or so of her plan to tax the wealth of the very rich. Warren has also proposed a 7% tax on corporate profits above $100 million, and that would raise an estimated $1 trillion over 10 years as well. So while we've seen Warren propose universal child care, free public college, student debt relief, and a number of other programs, I think it's very likely we're going to see even more spending programs proposed by by Warren because at this point, she really still has money to play with.
1: If we ask the great fortunes in this country, and understand, this isn't about trying to be nasty or say that you've done anything wrong. What it's about is saying, look, you had a great idea, you got out there, you've worked hard, or you inherited well, whichever one it was. (laughs) But now that you've got that great fortune, spend just a minute to remember how you got it. You built that great business, or your ancestors did, using workers that all of us help pay to educate. Are there any potential pitfalls to to this plan that she's proposing?
2: The idea that this will frustrate people who worked really hard to pay off their student debt, who may not have gone to a four-year college precisely because they were worried about paying off their debt, I think people will be concerned and, re- and raise that objection. Some of the polling on this is, is quite good, particularly among Democratic primary voters. By a wide margin, voters in the, in the Democratic Party support some version of this idea. That said, would a general election audience be receptive to this kind of thing? I, I don't know, and I don't, I don't think anyone really knows, because this is really the first time that this idea, which was really on the far left fringes a few years ago, has, has been really talked about in a serious way.
1: Well, it's also notable that that what she's proposing would provide a huge amount of debt forgiveness for people making under $100,000, but would still be providing debt forgiveness for people making up to $250,000 a year, which I think is clearly not just a plan to help lower income people.
2: This was a really important debate, I think, during the 2016 Democratic primary, where you saw Bernie Sanders say that we should provide free public college and tuition um, to everyone in America, and Hillary Clinton say... Why are you trying to subsidize the college tuition of Donald Trump's children, who do not need, Hillary would argue, the help of the federal government? And that argument has sort of continued to play out in in the more recent years. And, And I think a number of the Democratic candidates have sort of implicitly sided with the Sanders' argument that having these programs reach more than just the poor or the lower middle class increases the public purchase of them, increases their popularity because they reach more people. This is an argument that would also apply to programs like Social Security and Medicare, which people benefit from regardless of their income. Now, a lot of people still say that we should change Social Security and Medicare so the very rich don't benefit, but this is an ongoing discussion, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about it once the primary debates actually start.
1: So how have the other 2020 Democratic candidates responded to Senator Warren's plan, and what are their plans for the student loan crisis?
2: So Warren introduced her plan, I think, somewhat cleverly, right before a CNN town hall event in which four of her competitors were also put in the national limelight. And they had different and varying reactions. Amy Klobuchar, who was trying to carve out a space in the center of the race, instead pointed to her proposal to allow former students to refinance their loans at lower federal rates, which would have a big impact, but not go nearly as far as Warren's idea. I wish I could staple a free college diploma under every one of your chairs, I do. Don't look. It's not there. (laughs) I wish I could do that, but I have to be straight with you
1: and tell you the truth.
2: Senator Bernie Sanders talked a little bit about how he has been a proponent of free college for many years, that he and Warren share the same overarching goal, which is to eat out this problem and alleviate this problem. But Sanders stopped short of endorsing the specifics of student loan forgiveness for 42 million people, as Warren's proposal calls for. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who has surged in polling in recent weeks, talked uh, not specifically about the idea to relieve student debt, but cast some skepticism on the premise of free college.
0: I still want to do some math around it. I find it pretty appealing. I'm not as certain that I'm comfortable with uh, people of that high in income uh, participating until we have uh, completed the, the transition to a more uh, progressive tax code.
1: It seems like Senator Warren is really focused on being the wonky candidate who keeps putting out these very fleshed out policy proposals. Is that a strategy that is going to work for her?
2: We're seeing some signs that Warren's strategy of releasing very detailed policy proposals have had some positive effect on her campaign. There are studies documenting that she sees surges in fundraising and contributions when she releases one of these proposals. And we'll have to see uh, what happens after this one. That said, Warren has still struggled in the polling. She's not really broken through to the top tier of candidates. And while her crowds in Iowa and New Hampshire are pretty big, she's still considered pretty far behind Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Bernie Sanders, and even Mayor Pete Buttigieg. So we'll have to see whether this is enough to get her over the edge. It's certainly fun for policy reporters like me to get to cover these meaty ideas, but whether that will be enough for voters is a big question that remains to be seen.
1: Jeff Stein is an economic policy reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. It's been two weeks since the start of the national elections in India, where voting takes place over a month and a half in a meticulously organized process.
3: This is a national election, which will be the largest election ever in the history of the world with 900 million voters, which will send over 540 parliamentarians who in turn select a prime minister.
1: This is Niha Messi. She's the India correspondent for The Washington Post. And Neha recently traveled 300 miles with a group of election workers to set up a voting booth for one single voter.
3: The journey began at one of the district headquarters, where they had to pick up their polling equipment, which includes voting machines, a a lot of paperwork. So the first day, we travelled a lot on the road, trying to make sure that we reached the place in time, since there was also a trek through a jungle. During the trek, they found out that the woman was not in her village home anymore and she had moved elsewhere. So they had to think on their feet and and decide to set up the booth slightly closer to the main road at the edge of a forest. They found like a tin shed. Uh, It was literally enough to hold four people together. They even uh, put up in that tin shed, they put up an entry and exit sign as well, uh, which is a rule mandated by law. Election rules are very, very codified in India and there can be no deviation, even if these are exceptional circumstances. So the rules mandate that nobody should have to go further than a mile from where they live. Uh, Now, of course, in this case, uh, she seems to have moved recently. But since she was registered as a voter in that area, they had to reach her in that area. Just like the election commission puts in a lot of effort to to reach voters, the voters do take their job seriously. So she had been staying almost 100 miles away uh, with her mother, who was unwell, and she drove down uh, on a scooter all by herself to cast that one vote. And despite a last-minute glitch in one of the voting machines, they managed to find a replacement in time and make sure that she did cast her vote and take selfies before she went back.
1: Niha Massey is the India correspondent for The Post. The current election in India will go on for four more weeks before it wraps up on May 19th. You can follow the Post coverage of the India election on WhatsApp learn how at postreports.com That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to leave a review about the show on your preferred podcast app and head to postreports.com to subscribe to our daily email blast, which gives you a heads up every weekday afternoon about what's featured on the latest episode. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Deep State, an EPICS original series. Don't miss this electrifying conspiracy series when it returns Sunday, April 28th, only on EPICS. Get the channel or get the app.
2: Hey, this is Christina Quinn.